Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the professor. Hello, Alan. Evening. Evening. How are you getting on, man? I'm all right. I'm good. I'm, I'm dirty from being in the land of shit. Thankfully, this is a podcast. You don't have to see or smell me. There's some really quite agricultural elements to, to the day job. When a new lander is being born, it requires a bit of shouting at. Yeah, two long-term landers going to put them out this week. Four and five thousand meters of water for six months. Do that repeatedly over two years. Yep, it's fighting me, put it that way. <laughs> it's fighting us on many, many levels, from legal to permitting to logistics to people delivering stuff on time to boat charters to everything. It's, it's, it's complex. And I'll be very, very glad when the last one plops into the sea. Glad to be rid of it. Well, then you don't have to think about it for six months. Yeah, go think about what you've done for six months. Even if it's a complete disaster, we won't know for six months, so we can just think about something better. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when we sent down a long-term system and a barnacle decided to set up camp right in the center of the lens? Yep. I like that one. That was good. I don't really have a favorite individual barnacle. But I do have one individual barnacles that I dislike the most out of all the barnacles <laughs> in the sea, and it was that one. Yeah, to great pleasure scraping that one off. But it, didn't it turn into data? Because we knew exactly where the camera went down, so we knew how long it had to grow. To be honest, uh, this is a bad story, but I, I gave all those barnacles to an undergraduate student who did a whole bunch of analysis, and he didn't do a very good job of it. And in the end, I thought, it doesn't matter, I'll get someone better next year to do it. And it turned out he threw them all out. He just measured them and threw them in the bin. Well, they were done. Yeah. Finished. I know. I didn't think I'd have to say that. I'd go and just keep the sample at the end. I didn't realise people would think about, oh, I'll just measure this and I'll quite look at it. Boom, in the bin. Done. Not when you're just measuring. Like, fair enough if you're, like, desiccating it and grinding it up, but not just measuring it. No, destroyed a lot. It sounds like he, he wouldn't be a listener, so we, we don't have to feel too bad about telling that story. Well, even if he is a listener, he knows what he did. <laughs> it's been long enough now that I'm not angry about it. I'm just like, but like, what a wasted opportunity. What a great data set that would have been. But anyway, barnacles, eh? Barnacles. Ah, uh, Darwin was right. He said horrible things about barnacles. He didn't like them. Actually, the ones we're talking about uh, are the ones that Darwin described. Oh, the goose ones. The little... Yeah, little stocky ones. Weird stem. They regularly yeah. turn up on like Reddit. People don't tend to see them. And so someone will find them washed up and they'll be just like, what the hell is this? Barnacle-like monster found on the beach. Yeah, it's the big goose barnacles, especially once their legs are still kicking. They're a pretty creepy thing to find washed up. Yeah, I like a goose barnacle. They're great. Good and weird. Well, if you throw away samples after just measuring them and you want to make it up to us, you could sponsor us on Patreon. Ooh. Yeah, so we mentioned on the last one, we started a Patreon. It was just a nice way of people helping support the show, help us keep it going. But I never expected like the sort of response we got. Like, I'm really, really flattered that so many people, just for the sake of keeping the show going, will give up a little bit of money. And so we really appreciate that. Part of that is you get to come onto a Discord channel. And we've had some really nice chats. It's still getting off the ground because, of course, we're just building up numbers right now. But we've had some really good chats. And some of our listeners are really interesting. We've been talking about sub-rescues and new tech. Some folks work offshore, but they're sort of more military-focused. And just I'm really enjoying chatting to some listeners. Am I supposed to be in these chats? I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> well, clearly, because you never told me about it. I didn't know you were chatting to these folk. Yeah, I'll get. I'll give you. I'll give you the link, Alan. I'll let you loose on there. Some of them are really well informed. Like they found stuff that we'd appeared in that I'd forgotten. I didn't know you got some swears into the New York Times. There's a very moody black and white picture of you in your in your Arctic gear. Oh no, that got that got us in trouble. That that, that journalist got a really bad time because yeah, that article it was in the New Yorker. And uh... oh, was it that one, the bad one? Yeah. Oh, I just quite like the picture. Yeah, I never even said that. I don't think, but anyway. Yeah, he got his comeuppance in the end. He came back on the ship and he, he had 
he wasn't well received, shall we say. And we'll just leave it at that. Okay. Come yeah. up and... yeah. Well, people who we love are current patrons. So this is Arlene Ogston, Philip John Pearson, Rosa Potter, Lexi Harding, William Ben, Dylan Wesley Taylor, Kat Bolstad. Kat! Thank you. Friend of the show, Kat. Laura M. Smith and Scott Carl. So thanks so much. It really was lovely. I wasn't expecting such a response on the Patreon. So thanks so much, guys. You are keeping this going. And thanks again to everyone who bought some merch, subscribed, shared the show, all, all the lovely things that help us keep going. We really appreciate it. It's really flattering that our community is sort of helping us out. So do you have a soundtrack for the month, Alan? I kind of do, but I haven't really heard it. So is that a cheat? No, we can all reveal it together. A music-related thing, but I haven't been able to see it because it's not really technically out yet. It's a new album that's out on Bandcamp soon, I believe. It's not out yet. There's only one demo track on it, and it's from a Lithuanian conductor, composer called... God, this is so hard. My Lithuanian's pretty rusty at the moment, so it's... uh, Dare I say, Zabuki Martinaitite? But anyway, she has produced an album called Hail Zone, which was brought to my attention. And looking at the track listing, it's got 12 tracks. It starts off with intro, then Epipelagic Part 1, 2, and 3, Mesopelagic Part 1, 2, and 3, Bathypelagic Part 1 and 2, Abyssopelagic Part 1 and 2, and then Hadopelagic. So someone's written an entire piece called Hadopelagic. A journey. I've listened to Epipelagic Part 3, and it was magical. It's not a tune, though, is it? It's a soundscape. I think so. At least a bit that I listened to was. It was you can't dance to it. Well, you can't. You, 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 it's not the kind of music you would play along with a banjo. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But it, it's, it was very uh, emotive, shall we say. Excellent. Yes. Anyway, there you go. We might have to put that one in the show notes because I don't know how to say it nor spell this person's name. So we'll just put it in so you can copy and paste and find it yourself. There you go. Well, yeah, we'll put the link in as well. <laughs> Honestly, it's a beaut. Yeah, Lithuanian, yeah, I better go and read up on that. Well, talking of things you can read up on, what's going on in the news recently? Well, following on from our deep biosphere episode last month, there has been a sort of ancient ocean floor surrounding the Earth's core revealed by seismic imaging. So there may be yet more deep biosphere habitat unveiled. What do you mean a massive ocean floor? So it's a thin, dense layer, roughly 2,000 miles, so 3,200 kilometers below the Earth's surface, between the core and the planet's middle layer, so the mantle. And there's theories that it might actually encompass the entire core mantle boundary, so wrap right around the planet, basically. Wow, so there's an entire old ocean hidden in the deep biosphere. That what you're saying? The layer itself is very, very thin compared with the core, which is 450 miles or 700 odd kilometers across. The ancient ocean layer uh, likely developed when Earth's tectonic plates shifted, causing oceanic material to be carried into the planet's interior in subduction zones. So over time, the accumulation of subducted oceanic material collected along the core mantle boundary were pushed slowly by the flowing rock of the mantle all across that interstitial zone. We're not doing very well at this one. I'm mesmerized by the fact there's a sponsored link that has a CGI model of a hornet, as in the fighter plane, just flying over the sea, and it's quite distracting. Oh, you're getting that as well? Yeah. It's very distracting when I'm trying to get my head around something which is massive, huge, seismic. I'm like, ooh, fighter plane. (laughs) So new research with autonomous vehicles has revealed how important the Drake's passage is in carbon cycling. So the deep sea only interacts with the atmosphere through about 5% of the ocean's surface. So there's these incredibly important spots where 
surface water is driven down into the deep sea, it lets the deep sea breathe, it brings oxygen down there, and it's also a great sink for carbon. And Drake's Passage is one of the few places where this happens. But this Drake's Passage is famous for being very, very turbulent. It's not a not a nice place to go on a boat. It's got quite a good reputation. And surface water here is sent down so quickly that it actually brings down fresh phytoplankton. Usually phytoplankton sort of die and they rain down as marine snow. And that's quite a long process. They get broken down and respired a lot by bacteria along the way. So only a bit of the carbon reaches the seabed. But Drake's Passage is so sort of violent that that fresh living phytoplankton is sent into the deep sea. So it sequesters a lot more carbon that way. So yeah, nice new study on how important that is. You have ventured through the Drake's Passage, Alan. Was it lovely? Did you get the deck chairs out? Yeah, I always feel a bit bad about that one because it's one of those weird nautical things where some ships give you a certificate for having crossed Drake's Passage and all that kind of windswept nautical stuff. And, uh, and everyone kept telling us this is where the Pacific fights the Atlantic and Antarctica. And so it's just an absolute maelstrom the entire way across. But once you get there, it's all icebergs and penguins and you'll love it. It's great. But you just have to knuckle down and see this whole Drake's Passage thing. And actually, when we crossed it, it was lovely. It's a day off. We got a certificate. And it's like, thanks. <laughs> thanks for building that up. Yeah, it took a few days, right? I mean, it's a fair way to go. But it, yeah, it was like, thanks. And then everyone's like, wow, we've still got to cross it to get back again. Oh, and it was, uh, it was lovely. <laughs> Just literally plain sailing all the way. Every day it got a little bit warmer and made it pleasanter on the way back. Yeah, got a little certificate with some sea dragons and stuff like that on it and saying, you know, well done, I'm a hero. Didn't, didn't deserve it at all. Didn't quite feel earned. Not in the slightest. <laughs> I'm going to do it again next year, though, next December. Good. This time I'll get my ass kicked. Yeah, that's it. It's heard you now. Twice. Twice to make up for last time. <laughs> Sneaks up behind you. A lovely new pristine deep sea reef has been found in the Galapagos Islands. And just lovely, lovely shots. It's not super deep, 600 metres. Deep enough. We'll we'll count it. But lovely diversity, lovely colours, octopus, lobsters, fish, corals, soft and hard corals, uh, sea pens, just general deep sea loveliness. And uh, certainly check out some of the pictures there. It's, uh, It's good to see. And what's this about all these volcanoes? So new radar satellite data. Actually, it just got released as a pressurized episode in our episode talking about how we map the seabed. What do we mean when we say it hasn't been mapped? Most of the broad scale mapping of the seabed has been done by satellites and you look for gravity anomalies. So the the shape of the seabed does affect the surface of the uh, ocean if you've got a keen enough eye. And new forms of processing and new sensors have revealed 19,000 previously unknown undersea volcanoes. So like Ash was saying on, on his Seamounts episode, they're far more abundant than we often talk about. And so that adds 19,000 to the record. Ooh. Mm. I read something. This is actually a little bit old. It was February this year, but I only came across it the other day. But there's a study from the University of Vienna talking about deep sea fish are going to get smaller. Oh, yes. Yeah, I saw that one. You see that? Yeah. That's kind yeah. of cool. Climate change. Yeah. They're going to decrease in size with climate change because look to the otolith, uh, loads of fish going way back. And during the interglacial or glacial periods, when it warms up, the fish generally get smaller. And then when it gets cold, otoliths get bigger. Therefore, they can assume that the body size is bigger. So people are generally disappointed anyway when we tell them how big deep sea fish actually are. Now they're going to get even more disappointed when they <laughs> say, remember I told you they were small? Yeah, well, they're getting smaller. Now they're extra small. Yeah. Yeah, the scary ones are tiny and the big ones are sort of dumb looking. Yeah, the big, the ones that look like they just want to retire. Yeah. Just be another animal for a while. I mean, I love them, but they're, yeah, they're not scary, the big ones. Yeah. I saw a scale model of a colossal squid today, and that scared me. It was just hanging from the ceiling. I didn't know it was there. So this colossal squid thing, right, now you've seen the size of it, 
how many of us would we need to put together to see if we can take it in a fight? Because that's what big squid science is all about, who wins in a fight, right? So how many average marine scientists would it take to bring this thing down? I would say it really depends on the home advantage. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we're doing it in a car park, then it'd take two of us. Yeah, <laughs> do it out, out the back of the pub for yeah. a fighting chance. But on like, a really sunny day, on, on scorching tarmac, I think we'd yeah. be all right. <laughs> but if we were in Drake's Passage, for example, probably nah, not. No, I think it would take a lot of scientists. And to be honest, I think we'd only win when it got full. <laughs> it just started to slow down because it was so full of scientists. <laughs> it just started to choke. Spitting out the clipboards. It's a real home team advantage, that one. We have been talking about sea mounts, hydrothermal vents, whale falls, deep biosphere, all as interesting ecosystems in the deep sea. And there was one that we wanted to talk about because it's big, uh, or at least uh, abundant, but not necessarily natural, and that is the wonderful world of shipwrecks. So we thought we'd have two guests on today, two people that we know and worked with before, to cover two different aspects of shipwrecks. And one is more of a, with the human element in there is to, you know, the history is to where ships are, what, what makes shipwrecks important, and how you find them, the technology involved in actually going out and finding them, and why there's value in finding them in the first place. And the second guest is thinking more about the life history of that shipwreck, what it does, what does it do to the environment, what lives on it, and what happens after that. Because we tend to think about them as, oh, ship sunk, and that's the end of the story. But it's not. It's almost the big beginning of a new chapter in the ship's life because it's going to descend, it's going to sit there, it takes a while to settle, and eventually becomes colonized. And those ungrateful deep-sea creatures don't just colonize it, they basically eventually tear it apart. And so our first guest today is, I'll let you introduce him, Tom. Leighton Raleigh. There you go. Boom. Pick up the phone. Let's phone Leighton. So today we have the award-winning Leighton Raleigh, who has 20 years' experience supporting science operations at sea. He's supported over 120 science expeditions from the tropics to the edge of the ice sheets, and his main focus is advancing scientific knowledge of the oceans. But in doing so, he has found and documented dozens of historical shipwrecks. And he's currently working for Rev Ocean, but he's also worked with Schmidt, which was the last time that Tom and I worked with him. And before that, he worked on NERC vessels in the UK, which is where I first came across him many, many, many years ago. So... Welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Leighton. Thank you. I know you're a man of many talents in the realms of exploration, but you're also known as a, a chronic Welshman with a love of technology and history and the ocean. So of all those strings to your bow, we want to talk about the shipwrecks. So can we say that you're famous for having found the Terra Nova? <laughs> I would say I'm famous. Yeah, I've, I've done a, a lot of work towards shipwrecks, and I think not so much famous, but recognised for my uh, intense passion of finding shipwrecks. Yeah. So... What I like about you is, is you've got this really cool mix of exploration and, and subsea technology and, and history and so on. But in terms of finding a shipwreck, there must be a long road between picking up a history book and getting the camera down there for that all-important shot of the of the name of the ship. So can you talk us through how you go about finding a wreck when you don't know exactly where it is? It can be a really complex process. It can actually be quite a simple one as well. In In some cases, we have photos of a ship sinking with land in the background. And you can match up that terrain and go out and map. And like with cases with petrol and the USS Ward, you could see the terrain in the background. So that was a relatively easy find. Mm. But for the ones out in the deep ocean, there's a lot more work. And the older they get, the harder it becomes because, you know, navigation nowadays, we all rely on GPS and equipment like that. But back in the old days where they had sextants and, uh, you know, celestial uh, positioning, which would give you several to a dozen miles fixed. 
you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. So you have to trawl through um, the history books, find as much information. And, you know, there's places like Kew Gardens, the National Archives in London, which has thousands of, uh, if not millions of records on shipwrecks and stuff. So it's a great place to start um, trawling the archives and putting all that information together and building a picture of, you know, what happened, even things like what was the weather that day, going off to meteorological records and looking at current information from modern sources and as far back as we can to figure out, you know, the standard weather in an area. And even um, on some of the more uh, recent wrecks we've been doing, we've actually been applying mathematics, things like Bayes theory for looking where the most likely location of a wreck is and putting all that information almost into a mathematical formula to figure out where something is and the chances of finding it if it's there. So, you know, there's a lot of research that goes in and trying to make sense of all the data. And uh, there's hurdles in that. Some people yeah. forget that there's a difference between magnetic and true headings. You know, <laughs> some people have gone yeah. looking for wrecks in entirely the wrong places and that. So it's understanding the information. It's the same as like, I remember when we were looking for the Johnson. And uh, we talked about this on the podcast well about when it was happening. And I think there was some confusion because I think when you get war wrecks, you've got a report from the American side and a, a, an account of the sinking from the Japanese yep. side. But, if, but they don't necessarily marry up. Because no, you've got totally not. you've got two different errors involved, and you're trying to work out which is the most likely, and so on. It is very complex, isn't it? We see that a lot, yeah, definitely between a lot of the fights around the Philippines and that, where you've got a American account, and it totally differs, and like who scored what hit when these hits occurred, and you know, I think around the Taffy wrecks, the confusion of war and the fog of war that can lead wrecks to be in dozens of miles away from where everyone thinks mm. that they should be. And so then what happens? So when you, once you've narrowed it down to so you know roughly where it, where it's going to go and you, you get the research vessel and off you go, where do you start in terms of survey and honing in on the exact position? Sometimes we use Bayes theory, which will run thousands of simulations based on the information that's available and figure out the more probable location of where the um, ship is. And if it's there, can we find it with the technology that we've got? And then we'll plan the survey around the areas where it's most likely to occur. Now, as I say, we use Bayes theory, but sometimes you just go on a gut feeling, yeah. you know, where all the information points to a location. Sometimes it's just like, oh, let's just start here. And then um, the search evolves from that. You know, there's nothing better than hitting the wreck on the first go, like with the Terra Nova. I think we found that in 40 minutes, even though she was 20 miles away from where she went to be. And there's this amazing uh, reaction when you find it that early on. But some searches, they're just not in the right place. You know, they're, yeah. they're miles and miles away. But I think most of the, the search work is done using acoustics, right? You wouldn't yeah. necessarily just go straight with a camera and get an ROV down there because the field of view is so small relative to the expanse of the sea that it never really worked. Yeah, and we've seen, um, you know, in the last 20 years since we've started going to it sea, there's there's different methods of finding wrecks. And we have found them with hull-mounted systems. Patrol did some great work out in the um, Philippines looking at um, wrecks in a 300, 400 meters using the ship's multi-beam. Hmm. And a big battleship, you know, when we hit it with sound, it reflects that. It's a big metal target. So, you know, we get this information back that, hey, there's a big metal shape on the seabed. The deeper it gets and the rockier the terrain, if it's muddy, if it's sandy, it really causes issues there. So, you know, we couldn't resolve some of the wrecks a lot deeper. Yeah. So then we use other tools like autonomous vehicles, which are like torpedo-shaped devices that have mapping systems, and they take the sonar closer to the seabed so we can resolve those wrecks on the seabed. It's like a torch, really. If you held it a meter above a table, you can illuminate the whole table. 
but if you bring it closer, you can really increase that intensity and see all the scratches on the table. Mm. And that's really what an AUV does. It gets closer to the seabed and we can see more detail. So there's wrecks that we can't see from a ship. We can see when they're lying on the seabed using this AUV, but they take longer to work. So you have to invest more time in the search. So, But when they find a wreck, they can sometimes map them with the newer systems like synthetic sonar to centimeter accuracy. So you can see the hits in the wreck. You can see damage. Yeah. You can see ropes. You know, they are phenomenal systems and we've come a long way in the last 20 years. Are there rules to this? Are there like scientific rules to when you can say for certain it's definitely that particular ship? Do you have to get that shot of the ship's name or the call sign or something? Or or can you go entirely on acoustics? Is the shape distinct enough? You wouldn't. I mean, especially, I guess, um, with the Taffy um, ships, there was so much going on there, you wouldn't be able to resolve them. In most cases, you want that. It's a terrible term, money shot of like, you know, mm. when you see Petrol's earlier work of the Indianapolis, the number 35 on the bow to indicate that is the Indianapolis. Yeah. And like, you know, the name like Johnson on the ship or its pennant number. Or if there's no other ship like it in the area, the Terranova, 57 meters long, wooden hull, wreck from Dundee, she's a whaler. You know, you can categorically say this is that ship. Yeah. But you really need to be able to prove it. And there has been a number of mistaken wrecks, like in Iron Bottom Sound, some of the battles at Guadalcanal, where they've even actually gone down, and the ship's very similar to another one, and misidentified them to be corrected yeah. later. Is there some sort of international body of shipwrecks where you go to them and say, I want you to register this because we've found this, and therefore it's somehow on a record, or is it just you just kind of put it out and see what happens? I think um, in a lot of cases, for some of the merchant ones, you know, there's, there's millions of wrecks in the sea, so you might find mm. older ships, which will generally just come out, hey, we found this shipwreck, we don't know what it is. For military ones, there's a whole like process where you know, if you went out and found a British uh, World War II ship in uh, international waters, you would contact the Admiralty and the Naval Historical Branch and inform them that yeah. you found that wreck. And there are stringent rules for operating. There's strict no policies, uh, no touch policies. You can't take pictures of anything that could be clothing or show where there was a body lying. You can't penetrate inside a wreck yeah. that's a war grave. So there are laws that protect it. So I remember going to see with you a long time ago, I believe it was 2007, and yeah. just before we got on, you guys had stumbled across a Yugoslavian bulk carrier at 3,000 metres. Was that, yeah. I can't remember the details, did you come across that by mistake? Or was that one of the ones you, you honed in on? It was more a mistake. We knew there was a wreck in the area, but we were also looking for seeps on the seabed. And mm. the one interesting thing about the wreck that we saw, it was a coal carrier. And as it inverted and capsized, the holds burst open and all the coal fell out from the ship. And it created a debris trail on the seabed that had a different reflectivity from the mud. The coal bounces back the sound. Yeah. And it was almost like a comet trail. And at the end of that comet trail was this area, obviously a big metal ship reflects a lot of noise that indicated that there was a shipwreck. But we were also interested in the seeps. So we dived down and confirmed that there was a lot of coal on the seabed and it belonged <laughs> to this Yugoslavian bulk carrier. We never set out to find that wreck. But, you know, we identified it and we're able to say, okay, this isn't a seat, this is a wreck. And, you know, we do come across shipwrecks at sea just by chance and operating mm. in some parts of the world. We've even found things like missiles and rockets and things from military tests, <laughs> yeah. sea mines. You know, there's a vast amount of junk out there. And then in other parts of the world, you find stuff where people have just sunk all their rubbish. So there's a lot of uh, strange things we find down there. And so do you think, because we, we, were, we were talking about this on the ship when we were doing some shipwreck stuff, and whether or not it's, assuming you've got the right tools for the job, is it easier to find a wreck in shallowish water or deep water? Because what's saved us several times 
is the size of the debris field, which gives you a bigger target to get eyes on. But it's only big because it's spread out because it's fallen over such a huge depth. And so it kind of cheats a little bit where the depth is an issue, but the size of the debris field is bigger. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a good thing. You look at like the Titanic's um, debris trail there and some of the ones, I mean, when you look at Hood, Hood got blasted apart on the surface and then that debris trail filters down. So there is a case and it depends on the tool that you're using. I think, yeah, a deep water can be a lot easier. The difference is, depending where the shallow water is, for example, off Norway, there's a lot of oil and gas. The shallow wrecks have generally been found during surveys there which are yeah, unrelated yeah. to finding the wreck. So the deeper ones can, to a certain extent, be easier to find, but it depends on the, on the area, the depth of the water. There, there is a lot of variables, but debris trails are fantastic indicators and help you find them. I think things like the Barham haven't been found off Egypt, but that exploded. There's famous videos. The debris trail off that will be a, a really good indicator. How many wrecks are there? I read somewhere that it, it could be in excess of 2 million. Yeah, I think it was the UN report said there's, there's around 2 million, you know, and that's from inferring, you know, what we just stumble across, what we know is, is out there. So there are millions of wrecks, and sometimes you do just stumble on them in everyday operations, and you have no idea what they are. You think little fishing boats from 200 years ago, there's just timbers on the seabed, and no yeah. one knows what they are, or trading ships that just vanished into obscurity. The well-known ones, you know, they take a lot of interest, but there's a lot out there that we just don't know what they are, and there's no record from times when they were written. I remember doing an old troll survey back when I started on the Discovery. I think we were trolling it up at Porcupine Sea Bite or something like that, and one of the trolls came in, and it was just a big lump of wood in there, and it turned out to be this beautifully wooden carved banister. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, where did that come from? Yeah, and I remember them doing the same, and they brought up some uh, wood from a hull with copper sheathing on it, and you're like, well, that's an old ship. No one knows, you know, what they are. So it, it, there mm. are like millions of wrecks out there to discover. Everyone likes the famous ones, like the the Lexington, the Indianapolis, the Johnston. Yeah, things where you can tie them to tangible, usually sometimes recent history, although not always. You know, people like the Viking wrecks and stuff. But like, you know, some of the ones which have become popular, like the Johnson recently, because there's so much written about those battles. We had survivors up until recently who can give personal mm. accounts and seeing the wreck in a way can give closure to a lot of people. Yeah. You can also follow bit by bit when the ship was hit, where it was hit, how it was damaged, you know, the reaction to that. And it's really a window into the past in a lot of cases. And then for us as biologists, you can go down and you can see colonization of the wreck or in some cases, I think like Iron Bottom Sound, how that wreck is damaging the environment around there through leaching of chemicals from munition, oil. Yeah. They are interesting windows into the past, but also into biology in some cases or human impact. This is one of these things, isn't it? Because we always think of shipwrecks almost in a sort of romantic type of way, but yeah. it's still man-made litter, if you like, for want of a better term. It's still something that shouldn't be there. But as you say, sometimes they become artificial reefs. Sometimes... Yeah. They're full of oil and petroleum and all these other things, which sooner or later, as the over the lifetime of the wreck, is is going to come out at some point. Yeah. And, it's, and then at the same time, from an archaeological point of view, and this is something that came up certainly in the story with Titanic, is if you leave it where it is, it's going to dissolve, yeah. right? <laughs> but then, so what do you do? Do you get a massive tin opener and just crack it open and take out all the good bits? Because people are very divided on that. You can preserve some of this stuff, but that by doing it, it feels like you're desecrating it. But by yep. not desecrating it, you're you're signing its, its death warrant to it because it's never going to survive the seawater. 
Yeah, that is a tough ethical question. And uh, greater minds than Maya have, have pondered over that for ages. Like, you know, at what point does it become historic? You look at the Mary Rose, yeah. that fantastic ship that's been recovered and is now in Portsmouth. And you think of that and it's a window into history gone by. You look at the Titanic, it is fading away. But should one company be allowed to own that and run shows and charge a lot to do it? Or should it be for the greater good that everyone can see it? You know, and then you get to war wrecks where people really want to know what happened to a specific ship. They want to put a flag back on there because the ship's still in patrol. And other people want to leave it alone where it fell. And I think it's hard with the war graves where you look, you could go to France and you could visit the Somme or you could go to Passchendaele or various other places and see the brutality of war firsthand. But for sailors, they have no marked grave in this sort of case. You know, they were lost at sea. Nature took their bodies away, and the only thing that's left is this rusting hulk on the seabed, which the families in most cases can't see. So it's out of sight, out of mind, although there's a lot of people yearning to see it, and then a lot of people not. So there's always a delicate balance when you find these ones in the deep ocean, and a big ethical question. So out of interest, right, what wreck is on top of your list right now? If you could just (laughs) go for it, what would it be? Oh, um... I would like to find the wreck of HMS Glorious, a British aircraft carrier that was sunk during the evacuation of Norway. It's one of Britain's worst loss of life with over 1,500 killed Mm -hmm. on board three ships. So they were sailing back from Norway. Basically, the Germans had invaded the Low Countries. France was about to fall, and Britain realized that it needed to consolidate its forces in the UK against a potential German invasion. So they were evacuating Norway, and for some unknown reason at this moment, we kind of know what it is now, the aircraft carrier Glorious was allowed to return with just two destroyers. And on the way back, she just happened to encounter two German battleships that sunk them. And it was a massive loss of life. And there's so many unanswered questions in how this happened and what happened during the battle, why she wasn't flying aircraft, Mm. why she was where she was, that I would like to find that and see the state of the wrecks. Is that in the North Sea? In the Arctic Circle. It's just about 200 miles off Lofoten. So it's kind of in the the middle of nowhere, in in about 3,500 metres of water. So that would be an interesting one to find. There's been a huge amount of research done on that and thousands and thousands of records from the archives. But that would be a historic one. And there's lots of families connected with that. So I think that would be top of my list. Yeah, there's them. There's lots of other historic wrecks associated with older battles, but it takes a lot of time and investment to do the research into finding something. And like you, I've got a day job as well, which is supporting science. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Isn't it? It'd be nice just to go around and find all these things, but uh, yeah. in the current funding climate, that's not an easy thing to get away with. You know, the, the, the archaeology doesn't have the kind of money mm-hmm. to support huge seagoing expeditions with some of the most expensive gear you can think of when so. you, yeah when you look at a ship and how much you know we're talking say 40 or fifty thousand a day with the right equipment on there yeah. and uh some of these you don't know where they are so you add in a 20-day survey or longer and that price really starts getting up there you could add a caveat of we might not find it yeah it is a high <laughs> risk thing and especially for ones where they just have an intrinsic historical value hmm. you know you can see there's organizations that go out there and find gold yeah. when it funds itself or you know you look at something and you say there's 600 million in gold on there and we think we can find it in 20 days, then it becomes, you know, effective. If it's just for the historic value, is it worth it? In some cases, yes, very much so for the historical value. But it's trying to convince someone that they should part with a few million to go and do it. And things like endurance, you know, that was a fantastic find. And something like that will, in some ways, recuperate it because it's such an inaccessible wreck. 
It's tied with history and the challenges, the technical challenges speak for themselves. Have you ever been involved in exploring these munitions dumps? Um, I've stumbled across a few by accident off uh, places. There was some (laughs) off California. There was a lot of, um, I think, VX or one of the really nasty chemical weapons was dumped off there. And that was affecting the marine environment. You could see it leaching into Mm. the seabed. And, you know, we found munitions around the seabed while we've been doing work. But I've never actually gone to one of those areas and specifically looked at it. We found wrecks which have been sunk deliberately with things like mustard gas on. But again, they, they really have no historical value and as you say they're like a ticking time bomb biology wise they might be interesting but we tend to stay away because some people would say if you go near there and knock something then you were the last person to touch it and if anything ever happens yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. no i just think it's fascinating from the same sort of philosophical question about how we use the sea and what's in it and how much we should disturb it and so on and things like that but when i heard the number of potential shipwrecks being something in the region of 2 million. Like, wow, I never thought about that before. Yeah. And I had the same feeling when someone showed me a confidential map of where all the known munitions dumps are, even just around America. You're like, my God, there's so many. Yeah, I mean, so many just piles of bombs and missiles and oh, yeah. chemical weapons. And, and that never that never really gets into the public consciousness about what the sea has been used for probably maybe still is i don't know but i think yeah to a lesser extent and i mean you've dived to the deepest parts of the planet i mean there's a sr-71 in the mariana trench that they um, recovered i think removed some of the sensitive stuff off and then threw back in it was one of the first ones it it, it crashed and they threw it back in the trench so you know i think at that point they were thinking yeah you it's not going to be that easy to get down there but there there is an sr-71 that got dumped out there Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the single coolest plane that ever took off. Oh, and and it's in the Mariana. Yeah. All right, that's it. Yeah. Do you know what it is? Uh, no, but there's plenty of articles on it, and you can see it just before they dumped it back in. But it had a bit of a high-impact collision initially, but it's back down there, and that would be an interesting one to see. Suddenly there's somewhere in the, someone in the U.S. ringing alarm bells. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that phone call, though, that we've broken the SR-71. What should we do? Ah, oh, just throw it in the sea. Really? Are you sure? Because if we do this, <laughs> you're not getting it back. Actually, when you think about it, we're, even we're talking about that now, and the space programs that we've got going now, we fire yeah. rockets out of the, over the ocean. They may explode. They may come back down. And we've got those amazing graveyards of rockets, amazing, out in the middle of the ocean, far away from anyone. Yeah, it all ends up in the pond, doesn't it? It all ends up in the pond. Yeah. So is there any other great insight into, into shipwrecks you want to share with us? I think going forward, an organization that does science, say nine months of the year, but does a bit of wreck hunting to study the biology and the history, that would be an epic program. If you could balance the two, yeah. I think that would be the way forward. Because what we've learned from wrecks is that a huge number of people are interested in us putting, say, a high-end thermometer into the ocean and taking water samples that we can attract the people to, say, the climate change issues and other problems that are facing the ocean by occasionally doing these really amazing projects. Like you see the ones in the, I was at the Dead Sea or the Black Sea, sorry, where they've got these old shipwrecks with amazing carvings that are a thousand years old. Yeah. And that attracts people. But then also we can show them what else we do. So I think a balance of shipwrecks and um, science is is really appealing to the greater public. And I hope we can run a program on some ship like that in the future. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to looking for an SR-71 Blackbird in the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Yeah. That's an afternoon out, isn't it? I might come join you on that. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. And while you're at it, you could throw in the science that always needs to be done. Ah, no, 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 no. no. Don't worry about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for the Blackbird now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not looking for worms anymore. <laughs> looking for a blackbird. Oh, yeah, that would be the one right home. And you got to get a picture of the deepest fish. 
right down there next to a blackbird in the cockpit yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that'll be the the money shot as they say well lane that's been absolutely brilliant and thanks very much for for joining us on the deep sea podcast not a problem and thank you it's been a pleasure so lane was talking about this story which is a sr-71 blackbird if anyone doesn't know what that is google it it's one of the most awesome looking planes that ever flew i was obsessed with this as a child it's just like wow great stories involving the blackbird as well but yeah it turns out one of them crashed and they threw it in the mariana trench which is crazy it reminds me of that one about the apollo 13 when it came back with the lunar module still intact that was supposed to stay on the moon and it had something like 2.4 kilograms of plutonium on it and they didn't know what to do with it and they happened to be i think the, the module landed somewhere around the tonga trench so they figured they'd just throw it in uh, and that's that's the real deal. There's actually a scientific paper published on the structural integrity of the capsule. So, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people were like, hmm, trenches, get rid of stuff in them. Yeah, a bottomless hole in the ground. Yeah, I mean, the, the deep sea is a gateway to another dimension. So when you throw something in there, it can never come back, right? <laughs> that's, that's how it works. But So I wonder what else is out there. The whole point Nemo thing's quite interesting as well. And Yeah. What happens, I was thinking this other day as well, what happens, you know, when Elon Musk just blew up his big space rocket? Mm-hmm. Do they go out and get all that? No. I can't imagine that they've got like a, an army of ROVs and subs out there picking up all the bits. So does that just mean whenever there's a like a space center, Cape Canaveral or somewhere like that, there's just stuff all over the place? Yeah, that's why you have to put it as far out as possible, I guess. Yeah, because remember Patrick Lai was talking about he went, he went looking for pieces of the Challenger shuttle when it blew up, but that was for you know, forensic reasons. Yeah. But I don't know. I wonder how much of the stuff they pick up if they just blow up a little rocket. I guess they probably want to see it. Yeah, I've always found it strange when they sort of talk about scuttling a vessel mm. to be an artificial reef. And yeah, as we're about to find out, it does harbour a lot of life, but I can't help but feel like you just want to get rid of it, though. You're just calling litter by a different name. <laughs> and this this is a genuine thing. This is something that happened during the Five Deeps expedition when I was talking to the uh, the film crew, because we found this big canister or whatever it was, something like oil drummy type of thing, and they're like, oh, that's really bad, that's really terrible. And a few months later, we're at Titanic, and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. It's like, but isn't Titanic just like a massive oil drum? It's just a big metal object. It shouldn't be there. We've romanticized it, but... Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a human element to it, which is tragic. Of course, shipwrecks have, do have that element to it. But once that story's got some sort of closure on it, the deep sea animals don't know all that stuff. They don't know why Jack and Rose were on there and all that kind of <laughs> nonsense, you know? But ultimately, it's just... It's that sort of, uh, what's the old Greek philosopher was talking about? How many grains of sand do you pile on top of each other before it becomes a heap? Like, there's no... It's a sliding scale. Yeah, you can start up an oil drum, that's really bad. Okay, well, I, I raise you a car. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, but it's a famous car. Okay, that's okay. What about a plane? Or what if that oil drum was the same amount of metal, but as a sculpture? Yeah. To the deep sea, it's still an amount of metal that's been dropped in it. That's sort of appealing to us on a human level, whether we think it's good or bad. Yeah. I suppose there's contaminants in the in the oil, but then I was asking someone about, I was surprised at how clean the windows are yeah. on the Titanic. And apparently it's because lead was used quite heavily in the manufacture of glass back then. Yeah. So it's there's elements that are toxic. Well, it's come back as well quite often when we're applying for permits and we talk about, you know, dropping ballast weights with the landers or dropping ballast weights at uh, the end of a subdive. And there's always a big ding-dong about that. It's like, why are you dropping weights? Why are you leaving something behind? How much steel are you going to use? All the rest of it. And it's like, we could do this another 100 years and the amount of steel we drop probably doesn't even equal an average shipwreck. <laughs> it's like, you see how much steel is in even a, even a small World War II destroyer or something like that. It's like tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of it. And then there's, there's figures like, you know, two million shipwrecks, potentially, in the world. So like some of them are wooden and all the rest of it, but it's just the sheer volume of stuff that's gone there by accident. And we're talking about dropping 50, 100 kilogram weights and little yeah. discrete points. We always try and go for sort of low-grade steel that's going to rust away. We don't use any plastic yeah. relative to 
something that's had fuel tanks on it. Yeah. So anyway, we should uh, we should uh, have a wee chat with someone we know called Laurie. So we'll give Laurie a phone. And so today we have our second guest of the episode, and it's Laurie Johnston from Canada. And she's a microbiologist and research and development specialist at Ground Effects Environmental Services in Canada. And she's an expert in the microbial communities and their degradation of shipwrecks and other submerged artifacts. Much of her research is centered around the wreck of the Titanic, but she's also dived to numerous other wrecks, including the Bismarck and Titanic sister ship, the Britannic. And to talk us through the life history from the point that a ship goes from being a ship to a shipwreck, she joins us now from the incredibly landlocked Canadian city of Regina. So, hi, Laurie. Hi, how are you today? I'm good. So, firstly, let's assume we're talking about relatively large modern metal ships, or relatively modern metal ships. And we're often familiar with the stories of ships like Titanic up to the point that it sinks. But you talk us through what happens after it sinks. Well, after it sinks, most of the ships that I've looked at are quite deep, but they immediately become areas for wildlife in the ocean, the flora and fauna of the ocean, to start taking root and become quite their own habitats. If you're looking at Titanic, it's quite deep, so it takes quite a long time for bacteria, which I look at specifically, but to sort of take root and begin to inhabit the shipwreck itself. Obviously, these bacteria are found naturally in the environment, so they begin immediately, but we don't see incredible degradation until many years after, 25, 30, 50 years after is when you can visually see the bacteria at work and the outcome of biological degradation of these wrecks. Is there a noticeable difference between shallow water wrecks and deep water wrecks in terms of how quickly the microbial community start to break it down? Uh, yes, there's a huge difference. If you take, oh. say, Britannic, the types of biological growth on that are significantly different than, say, Titanic or Bismarck. In the shallower wrecks, there's much more competition from biological entities that also feed on bacteria. But yeah. those are not necessarily found on the deep wrecks, simply because those biological entities just can't survive at, say, four yeah. kilometers below the surface. So the bacteria on the shallower wrecks are sort of outcompeted for resources yeah. on those wrecks. And so how, how, how deep are these wrecks? The Britannic is, I forget how deep that one is. Uh, it's not very deep. It's, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 meters deep. And Titanic's, what, 3,200 or something like that, is it? Yeah, it's almost four kilometers. Right. Bismarck is six-ish. Wow. Yeah. Cool. No, it's, it's a very deep wreck, and it's a very ominous wreck as well. And so the microbes are, are breaking this down. What would they, <laughs> I was going to say, what, what would they be doing before the ship arrived? Do they sort of just sitting around dormant and they suddenly just flourish because suddenly they've been introduced to a huge chunk of steel? Or how does that work? The microbes are naturally found in the environment simply because there's elements of iron and sulfur and manganese and magnesium in seawater, in various sediments and rocks. So they're found throughout the ocean environment itself. But when they're given a shipwreck, it's almost like walking up to a buffet yeah. because all of these elements are readily available. 
So they quickly coat the ships around the ship. And I mean, obviously, these bacteria are also on the ship on the surface because it floats Mm. on the water. But when it sinks, they have access to just a, a huge buffet of elements that they need to survive. So one of the words I learned from having met you on a Titanic job some years ago is the word rusticles. I'd never come across rusticles before. I remember you were talking about something and I just going, oh, what do you want? You got, you got <laughs> back up there. <laughs> What's a rustical and why are they so interesting? Rusticles is a term that was first coined with Titanic and it basically is what it sounds like. It's a rusty icicle type structure, sort of stalactite type structures. Mm. And they're created through the microbial degradation of wrecks. And they're found globally, as far as we know. So it's basically just a term that easily describes a visual of what it is. So they're made up of the bacteria who mine the iron and the manganese and all these elements out of the steel and aluminum, basically anything, and create these homes for themselves, if you will. But they're so much more than that. It's a beautiful structure inside. They're extremely detailed inside this rustical, this outer casing. And there's all sorts of tunnels and crevices and everything for water flow and gas exchange and nutrient uptake. They're extremely detailed. I always thought they kind of make it look like the wreck's melting. That's the general impression when you see these things. If anyone goes and Googles a photograph of like the bow of Titanic, for example, you'll see that. It looks like a wax model that's been too close to the heater. (laughs) That's the best way I can explain what a rustical looks like. It does almost look like it's melting, but the process to build these structures over time is extremely detailed. And they're just a beautiful example of how bacterial life on some of the deepest wrecks in the world really become the dominant organism down there. And they look like wax, uh, potentially, but they're not solid. Their structures are extremely delicate as well. So they're sort of fragile, but for the environment that they're in, they're quite sturdy. And so from a biological point of view, we can learn a great deal from shipwrecks because they provide a hard substrate that perhaps might not have been there. And we often have very precise dates as to when the wreck arrives. So we can do lots of interesting things like look at colonization rates or growth rates. And because of the nature of, of a shipwreck, you can actually go back and revisit specific individuals over time, which is it's, it's something that's just harder to do when you're just on a, on a ridge system or an escarpment or something like that. So there's loads of things we can learn from biological point of view. But what can we learn from exploring deep wrecks that we can learn from from an engineering perspective? Well, all engineers are taught that corrosion is a chemical process that breaks down steel and that, and the seawater really accelerates the corrosion aspect. But from a biological perspective, the deep wrecks really have a very significant impact on the biological degradation of it. Mm. We've looked into the, as you said, growth rates and that, but the bacteria found in these steel racks are very good at manipulating charges. And we've just sort of started the long-term examination of how these manipulative charges aid biological growth because bacteria are sort of living entities, they are capable of manipulating these charges for their own benefit, meaning easier or more quickly are they able to 
degrade these steel shipwrecks, which make the degradation part of it, the as far as engineering goes, the collapse or bringing the wreck further to degradation quicker. So they've done a very good job of degrading the ship faster than expected. So that leads to, of course, collapse of things like decks or masts or outer shells. So they seem to be doing it both inside the wrecks and outside the wreck. Yeah. So it speeds up the process of degradation. And so a wreck like Titanic, for example, it's probably the easiest one to visualize, but from the point in which it landed on the bottom, other than the rusticles, has it actually changed much? You know, have decks fallen through and, and stuff like that, or is it still largely what it would have looked like a hundred years ago? No, the wreck of Titanic has changed considerably since the sinking. Obviously, we only have a, a picture from when it was first discovered to present, but decks have collapsed and we have been able to predict through examination of the biological degradation the collapse rate to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But because it's happening from both the inside and the outside, it's very difficult to gauge how quickly it's going to collapse simply because we don't have a, a good understanding of the rate of degradation from the inside. Yeah. We can visually see and test on the outside, but very few experiments have been able to penetrate the wreck and get a firm understanding of that degradation. But if you look at the bow section of Titanic, the back where the sections broke apart, yeah. the decks have collapsed in on themselves and will continue to do so. And so if I were you, myself and colleagues would probably open some sort of wager as to when the bow is going to collapse. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was a good way to make money. Put $20 in each, winner takes all, uh, I guess the year. Would that be something you would expect to see within 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? I, I, I honestly have, have no idea at what point you would someone would go back in a submarine and go, oh, uh, and the whole thing is just sort of like leaning over or, or, or caved in on itself. So what is it that is collapse? Is it all the decks have collapsed? Because that would be probably within the next 50 to 75 years wow. because just the rates of degradation, because there's really nothing there that can sort of outcompete the biological degradation, if you will. Yeah. So it will end up being just sort of a U-shaped structure on the seafloor with the decks collapsed in on itself. How long is that wreck going to be affecting the surrounding area for? Because oh. that's a, such a huge chunk of material there. Some of these older wrecks go back hundreds, if not you know thousands of years. I understand that there's a certain amount of lucky preservation involved in some of the older ones, but this is a big hunk of steel. That's going to be surely there for hundreds of years, right? Oh, definitely. It yeah. will uh, eventually go back to nature, which is just an iron blob on the floor. But because it's created such a, a habitat for such a diverse range of deep sea life, it's going to be hundreds, if not a thousand years for degradation. It won't look like Titanic, yeah. but it'll be around for a while. So tell us about Bismarck, because Bismarck is obviously very, very deep. Perhaps people are less familiar with that one than they are Titanic. And you said it was ominous 
you talk a bit more about that? Uh, Bismarck is extremely deep, so it takes a while to get down there. It takes almost over three hours to get down to the bottom, but it very much looks like a warship. You can see the swastika on the deck. You can see mm. torpedo marks on it. It's very dark, and the rustical growth on that, on the outer shell, is actually quite minimal. On the bottom section is missing from the shipwreck itself and in that is just streaming with rusticles. Hmm. One of the most interesting things from Bismarck is they had a number of planes on board and they had a lot of aluminum structures to those planes and mm -hmm. we had discovered a white rusticle Ooh. the elusive white rusticle <laughs> like the white whale <laughs> exactly exactly and that is from the aluminum being mined by bacteria so it creates these white rusticles and we have since seen them on other wrecks with a large amounts of aluminum on them but the structure is obviously it's younger than titanic as far as when it sunk and the age of the ship mm -hmm. but whatever the the steel making process that they used when they built the outer sheets for Bismarck was very good at being biologically inhibited for the bacteria yeah, presumably that's all affected as well because ships are painted in anti-fouling paint and stuff like that. That must surely slow things down a bit. It does on that surface alone. So, but one of the things that the bacteria are so good at is, I mean, obviously they're submerged in salt water is they will attack the steel from the other side. So they're very good. If you looked at something that has anti-fouling paint or anything like that on it, if you look on sort of the other side of it, the bacteria are continuously attacking that specific area and what they do is they basically go through and they take everything that they need and they will leave almost a carbon skeleton of what the steel is mm -hmm. so unless there's weight on it to sort of crush that carbon skeleton it'll remain intact and look oh well there's no biological activity or corrosion occurring here from one side but the other side is basically just carbon Wow, that's amazing. Do you have any idea of, with the, the wreck being the center point, how far in the horizontal plane is it having an effect? I mean, is, is all this stuff getting buried into the sediment surrounding it? And if you were to take a core sample from 50 meters, 100 meters, whatever it may be, can you still pick up signatures from the wreck? Oh, yes. Yeah? I think that the furthest they've got is, I think it was five to seven kilometers away. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a huge area that is being Whoa. inhabited, if you will. It's crazy creating its own little microbiome in there and just living quite happily off of the feast of elements of the steel and <laughs> everything else that Titanic had in it. It's just such a bizarre, in terms of, you know, sort of deep sea habitats, wonderfully surreal almost, you know, that this thing is just being slowly eaten alive by the smallest things in the sea. I love it. And the fact it's having an effect like six, seven kilometers downstream is is. It's just incredible. There's nothing quite like it in the natural world. You know, it really brings together the idea that, you know, nature really does rule all. Yeah. And no matter what environment it is, what we think is a harsh environment, it, it's just teeming with life.
I remember uh, Victor was telling me about when he dove on Titanic and he was making this approach towards it and he's looking out the window and he, he can see it on the sonar, but he can't see it visually and he's looking and he's looking and going, where the hell is this thing? And then he realises that the, the darkness of what she's staring into was actually the hull. <laughs> so, you know, he, he, he thought he was like, he, he couldn't find it, but because it's such a massive ship, it was basically this huge, big, dark thing. And then suddenly when he almost emotionally blown away by the sheer size of this thing sitting there and he's just this tiny little guy in a submarine. Did you get those kind of sense of awe when you approach these things? Oh, you do. Like, that's why I say it was a, my one of my favorites is because I was not prepared for how big it was. And no hmm. pictures and video and that, they just do not give you the scale of how small you are and how big this ship is. We approached it from the bow as well. And it was just, I mean, you you look out your portal and you're sort of just hovering off the sea floor and there's this massive ship in front of you that is dripping with these bright orange and red and yellow and purple rusticles and you were just in awe and you sort of have to take a step back and say oh my goodness like this is it's beautiful like the vibrancy of the colors and the intensity it's phenomenal so if there was any wreck in the world you would want to dive on where would you go if I give you the keys (laughs) keys to the sub yeah take it out for a little swing (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh I would probably, I think I'd probably go back to Titanic. There's just so much to see and just, you really do have a limited bottom time, if you will. So I would definitely like to explore that further. Very cool. Is there any other interesting facts or anecdotes about these big wrecks you'd want to share with us? There's so much work that still needs to be done. We have put long-term experiments on a number of racks, and these are sort of years to determine the rates of growth and types of growth and that sort of thing. But I'd really like to try to meld some genetics in there, some more multifaceted expeditions, if you will. So yeah. A lot of play get goes to engineers and marine naval architects and historians and things like that. But I really think that the science is key to understanding how our oceans and our ocean communities, particularly the deep ocean, all work together to make the environment that they're in really come to life. Yeah. So it's very difficult to convey to people the importance of the biological nature of degradation for not only the wrecks. The wrecks are, are just sort of a point in which people can visualize the bacteria in yeah. the ocean. But they're everywhere. And how are they affecting the health of these oceans over the long term? It feels like the wreck is actually pulling the bacteria sort of out of the dark and into the light. Because if it wasn't there, you could you could drive around. And you would never really appreciate the intense microbial action that's going on until you put a wreck in it and you just sort of, over long periods of time, just watch it dissolve. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, there's something really beautiful about that, I think. So it's genuinely a, a beautiful thing. 
it's very poignant, right? Yeah. That this is this is what the power of these microbes really have in the overall impact in society, right? There's corrosion everywhere, and how much of it is biological? How much of it is chemical? Or is it actually a combination of the two? Mm. And I guess one thing I'd like to clarify is that when I say biological or microbial degradation, this isn't one type of bacteria with all these wonderfully Latin names or anything. This is a consortia. This is groups of bacteria. Not one works independently. They work together. So you have this vast array of microbes working together to survive, not only at these extreme depths with no sunlight, but with resources that when you plop a shipwreck down there become abundant and they take over it's just saying i love this idea that it's almost like nature is just undoing your mistakes it's like this isn't supposed to be here and there's all these little critters just making it go away it's, it might take a thousand years, but they'll get there. You know? Well, and it will, and it'll just be sort of a, a orange smudge on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. But nature is very good at removing or at least using what they find there to survive, but eventually to break it down into the iron ore that made Titanic in the first place. Yeah. Last question. What's your thoughts on to preserve the historical significance of these things, thinking of wrecks more as a collection of artifacts? You know, to, if you leave it in the sea, it's certain death. It's, everything's just going to dissolve and break down. But then pulling parts of it back up to put them on display and preserve it seems like you're almost desecrating it. I've, I've heard both sides of this, and I'm, yeah, I'm just curious to know what, you, what how, how you would feel about that. <laughs> That's a tricky question. Yeah. I am of the mind that it's a very human thing to want to collect things Mm -hmm. whereas i have approached and will always approach uh wrecks for the majority of the time as graveyards they are to be respected they are not necessarily to touch or take from And I think there's so much more to learn other than artifacts or trying to save pieces and wrecks. I guess if it's off the wreck and it's sort of in a debris field, you know, bring them up, take them, whatever. But we have a huge history of the physical entities of Titanic, how it was made, what was in it. We know people who are aboard, we have personal items, but it's really a site that I don't think should be touched. The wreck itself should stay as it is. And we should look past the physical things like artifacts, if you will, and more into what the beauty that the environment is in itself, the degradation in itself. Yeah, it doesn't seem right to pillage it, doesn't it? To take a big hydraulic arm and to start hauling stuff out of it. And then it's already unnatural, but it's become natural in a a kind of sense. We know everything uh, about it, right? Like, I know that there's talk about they want to get into the wreck and bring up a, for Titanic, Mm. to bring up one of the radio operator things. Yeah. Well, why? You know what it is. You know where it is. No one's going to go and take it. We really need to sit back and say, okay, well, this is an environment unto itself. Yeah. And I'm I'm very uncomfortable with 
with that. It's probably not the popular opinion, but I just, I don't see, like, there's no scientific value. What? There's no real historic yeah. value other than selling tickets to people. Yeah, you're right. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to someone's going to make a lot of money from bringing that up. Yeah. Th- that feels a little bit lousy again. It's the act of pillaging it and then the act of profiting from that. Yes. Necessarily sit well. So, yeah. It's a really odd argument, and I know people are very divided on it, and it's just curious. It's it's a really interesting ethical discussion, and I doubt it'll ever be resolved. I always have to depend on people who make movies or documentaries or things like that to sell an expedition to go and investigate these wrecks from a scientific standpoint. Yeah. So if that's not a popular opinion when you say, oh, well, I don't take that, don't touch that, right? Like I run on the strictly non-invasive yeah. side of things. So it's probably not a popular opinion. Well, I, to be honest, I agree with you. I think it's more interesting to see how it eventually dissolves and how it sort of slumps back into its original natural form rather than seeing it in a museum in Las Vegas or something like that. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. Anyway, so, well, that's all the questions I've got for you today, Laurie. I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the Deep Sea Podcast. And that's, that's truly fascinating. My, the thing I'm going to take away from that is, is the concept of this is affecting the area around it by kilometres. I was figured it'd probably be tens of metres. I love that. That's, that's just didn't know that thank you very much for coming on board and hopefully you'll get back down to titanic again some point soon i appreciate this thank you well thank you very much it's just such a bizarre thing where you think these massive structures that are just sort of rusting away and the bacteria which are basically dissolving it and uh, she was saying that the influence of the shipwreck can extend for as many as six or seven kilometers whoa yeah Crazy, yeah. Did she touch on the Xeno Fire Force picking up their little ballast? No, because I'm not sure that's true. Oh, no. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's more likely that they're exploiting the scour behind the object uh-huh. because it blows away the soft sediment and gives them something to actually hold on to. Well, it makes sense. You'd like getting into a slipstream. Yeah, well, there was this idea that Xeno Fire Force that they create these tests out of the surrounding sediment and you quite often see them behind rocks or behind metal objects that landed on the seafloor. And one idea was that they were using the iron particles as ballast to hold up the seafloor. I guess there's no real smoking gun in that hypothesis right now, but mm-hmm. maybe it is. Maybe it will be a thing. But looking at a lot of the images, because we've got tons of images from the trenches of these things, and uh, they really like a bit of metal, especially that Ruku trench dive I did last year, seven and a half thousand meters. There was this like, array of maybe 10 to 15 like, paint pots, just rusted really, but it must have been really old. I mean, they were properly rusted through. And downstream of each one, there's just a little pocket of Xeno Fire Force. But then you'd expect to see that on anything else. Was it noticeably metallic things? Now we've gone back and looked at a lot of the video from the Triple Junction, they're also doing it around rocks. So they could be scavenging heavy particles off rocks, but they're not going to be dissolving anywhere near as fast as steel. Mm -hmm. So uh, it looks like it's probably more to do with the scour. I don't know. I struggle with that whole part of the animal kingdom. The Xeno Fire Force, the Foraminifera... (laughs) Gromids, the convocations. I just, I think most people struggle with it because I'm actually that that whole conversation came about because two of the the biggest experts in the world are can't figure it out. So I don't feel that stupid when I'm sitting there going, I don't know what any of these are talking about. All I see is these strange little things on the seafloor. One giant cell full of nuclei. Yeah. They're wild. They're great. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole show on them, but I don't think anyone in the world knows enough to fill 45 minutes. <laughs> it's like, well, they're these little things. We don't really know what they are. We could touch on it. We'll see how it goes, but. I think at the end of our habitat run, it would be good to do an oddballs run. So just look at particular animal groups that are odd, and yeah. I think that'd be a good starting point. 
So after all that said and done, let's go back to Drake's passage. Why is Drake's passage relevant to Don Walsh? Because Don's been everywhere, and Don's done everything. So Don has a Drake's passage story. Let's hear it, Don. Hello again. This is oceanographer explorer Don Walsh, and my uh, sea story for today is about a Soviet cruise ship named the Orlova. She was built in Yugoslavia in 1976 for the USSR and was one of eight similar ships, all named for famous stage and screen personalities in the Soviet Union. Lyubov Orlova was a film star in the 30s and World War II days and was one of Stalin's favorite actresses. The ship was built as a small cruise ship and could accommodate about 210 passengers. In 1999, she was converted to a, an expedition cruise ship. It was not a difficult conversion since Russia has very few ice-free ports, and so most of the merchant shipping that are built for Russian service are ice strengthening, which meant that she could operate in uh, ice-covered waters where the ice is up to several inches thick. Orlova began expedition cruises to the Arctic and Antarctic in the late 1990s. In 2000, I was on board as an expedition staff member for a 12-day expedition charter to the Antarctic. This was my 20th Antarctic expedition since my first one in 1971. Also, my wife Joan was on board, and she was happy to revisit one of her favorite places. Now, I've been to sea for several years on all kinds of ships, and as a matter of curiosity, I had a good look around Orlova. I did not like what I saw. Orlova was not in good condition. In fact, my impression at that time was that if the plague were to strike the world, Orlova would be ground zero. And this is when I gave it the nickname Glub Glub Orlova. However, we successfully completed our 10 days in the Antarctic area and headed back home across the infamous Drake Strait. I've made this 600-mile crossing several times, and it's notorious as a rough part of the world ocean. And this time, the weather was particularly bad. Technically, Orlova had stabilizers, but they did not seem to be working, and we rolled heavily. During one particular heavy roll, Joan's bunk broke loose from its fittings and sailed across the cabin and into the closet with a great crash. And she was uninjured, but thoroughly surprised. At the same time, all our drawers opened, and their contents were distributed across the floor. Fortunately, my bunk remained anchored, and I was able to extricate my bride from the closet without too much difficulty. Arriving intact into port at Ushuaia, Argentina, we were quite happy to bid farewell to the Glub Glub Orlova. Over the next few years, Orlova got handed down through a series of expedition and charter operators before she ended up in St. John's, Newfoundland in 2010. And it was there that her cruise ship career ended. The Canadian authorities seized Orlova for unpaid debts, such as fuel, port costs, and crew salaries. The crew hadn't been paid in five months. The amount due was close to a quarter million dollars, and the owners, as well as the cruise charter company, could not pay, and Orlova was abandoned. And there she remained alongside the pier for the next two years, slowly dying. Eventually, the crew was repatriated back to Russia and onboard maintenance had ceased. Attempts were made to sell her, but her condition was so poor that restoration to service was judged to be unaffordable. In uh, 2012, she was sold for scrapping in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean. In January 2013, Olova was towed out of harbor by a too small tugboat just clear of St. John's Harbor 
the tow line broke and the unmanned ship started drifting in the direction of some offshore oil platforms, many miles away, of course. At this point, the Canadian government chartered a more substantial towing vessel to reestablish the tow, but then that tow line also broke. However, by that point, she had drifted far enough off the coast that it was clear she wasn't going to be a hazard to the platforms. And by this time, she was also outside Canadian territorial waters, and the government decided that's it. They're not going to make any more efforts to uh, capture the ship. Of course, the ship's new owner had the option of hiring a proper tow vessel, but that was not done, and the unmanned expedition ship drifted off into the North Atlantic. Glub Glub Orlova became a ghost ship manned only by a large population of rats. Her location was known for a while through electronic emergency beacon signals, but they stopped when the batteries went dead. Unloved and unwanted, Orlova finally slipped beneath the depths at some unknown time. Based on the last sighting, probably it was around March or April 2013. The Glub Glub nickname had finally come true. Well, that's all for now, and thanks for listening. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We now have a supporters page. If you'd like to help keep the podcast going, like I said at the beginning, I just find it lovely how supportive our listeners have been. Like We really, really appreciate it. So we've listed some of the ways you can help the show from the free, you know, leaving a review, subscribing to becoming a patron or buying the merch. And, you know, nice ways to sort of interact and have chats. So you can check out the many ways you can support the show by visiting armatasoceanic.com slash support us. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for everyone who supported us. So extra, extra love and kisses to you and to all. Deep see you next time. And I hope you all ready. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. When's the last time you saw a T-Rex story that was actually genuinely interesting science, as opposed to T-Rex versus Allosaurus? The biggest update I saw was it has lips now. Is it? Yeah. Latest research has lips covering its teeth. Does that mean you can blow raspberries? Like, <laughs> you know, like a, like a horse. Mean, like a horse. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it takes the edge off them, doesn't it? T-Rex is really getting its edge taken off of it, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's got like covered in feathers and <laughs> in knees like a horse. <laughs> With its funny wee hands. It's just, yeah, it's becoming almost comical. It used to be ferocious, but mm. now I feel kind of sorry for it.